Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest today, back by the woodpile, is Marcel Felipe, the founder of the Inspire America Foundation, an organization dedicated to promoting democracy in Cuba and the Americas. And he's also the chairman of the American Museum of the Cuban Diaspora in Miami, Florida, which showcases and documents the history, culture, and contributions of the Cuban exile community. Mr. Felipe is going to give us some insight into those organizations, but he's also going to tell us about some individuals important to the cause of human rights and liberty, such as Monsignor Brian Walsh, Jorge Mascanosa, Dr. Oscar Bassett, and many others. But first, a little bit about he and his own family story. My name is Marcel Felipe. I am the chairman of the American Museum of the Cuban Diaspora and of the uh, Inspire America Foundation, which is dedicated to promoting uh, democracy in Cuba uh, and in Venezuela and other places in the Americas. I'm a lawyer by by trade and and a freedom worker uh, by heart. I was born in Cuba in the height of uh, Castro's power in the early 70s. When I was about eight years old, um, my family uh, began the process of telling me that uh, we wanted to that we were exiting Cuba. And that, that was, of course, top secret back then because that was very much frowned upon. Immediately, you became the target of harassment, ridicule, uh, mockery, degradation, degradation, everything that you could possibly think of. In school, uh, the teachers would say that, you know, my parents were, were betraying the revolution and abandoning um, the country uh, and, you know, to the rest of my classmates. Uh, my mother was in her last year of biology uh, to get her master's degree. And um, to be able to leave uh, Cuba, you have to sort of go back to the university and, and get some uh, release paper that said you're no longer a student. And uh, when she went back to do that, they told her, hold on one second while we get you the paperwork. And in the meantime, they emptied all the classrooms at the university and they did one of the uh, acts of repudiation, as they call them. Um, to repudiate the scum, which was my mom in this case. Mm -hmm. And she was basically pushed and kicked, literally kicked, out of the university grounds by the communist government um, uh, uh, folks, which they they organize basically the the students so that it's the people, not the officially the government, kicking you out. But obviously, you know, they're forced to. In fact, in the middle of the crowd that was harassing and pushing her, she saw um, one of her uh, closest friends, and uh, when they crossed uh, eyes, the, the friend stopped the chanting, um, but a few seconds later continued to chant um, in slurs and different uh, offensive uh, names uh, to my mom. Uh, having said that, in the middle of situations like that, you still see a glimpse of hope and humanity. As she was leaving, she tried to catch uh, a bus, and um, you know, one of the the folks harassing her, uh, pretty big guy, stood in front of the bus door and said that you know the bus was for revolutionaries and could not be used by scum. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bus driver uh, literally stood up, knowing that he is marked because it's clear which bus he's driving, mm-hmm. kicked the guy out of the way 
and put my mother inside, closed the door and took off and basically saved her from that from that angry mob. Um, so, you know, there's little acts of heroism that we could see. Uh, our house was um, uh, stoned. Uh, it was, uh, they put signs uh, on our balcony. My father was a doctor, so they put uh, two huge worms because one of the things that they do, like most of the dictatorships that commit uh, genocide, first uh, step to genocide, and Cuba was in the fourth of the seven uh, steps to genocide, uh, coined by um, uh, a famous professor on the subject. First thing you do is you dehumanize the targets. And Cuba was in the process of doing that by calling us all worms. Yeah. So they drew a little caricature of two big worms, my dad and my mom, and then two smaller worms, which I guess were <laughs> my brother and I. And um, and my dad's had a little medical hat, and <laughs> and so it's uh, it, it's 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 if it wasn't uh, so sad, it'd actually be be uh, be funny. I mean, I laugh now, but at the time, right. it was pretty degrading. You know, in the meantime, my father uh, on my father's side, since he was a doctor, he was not allowed to leave. When he was fifteen, he really liked the Beatles and rock music, mm -hmm. like most uh, teenagers of in the sixties. But because that wasn't in style in Cuba, he wasn't a good. Uh, communist, he was uh, referred to um, a military uh, school that's for re-educate political re-education. And if he didn't shape up there, then he would get sent to a concentration camp. And he wasn't reshaping. And he found out uh, through a friend of his uh, from the principal's office, a military uh, guy, that he was on the list to go to the concentration camp. And he snuck out uh, of the school, went to see uh, his father. And the next day, they showed up with a doctor that said, oh, this he's not an anti-communist. He's, um, he's one of my patients. He's a psychiatric patient of mine. And he has issues and what have you. And they saved him from going to a concentration camp uh, in doing so. At the same time, right after he left that, he went to look for some of uh, his friends. He had a couple of older friends who were 18, 19 years old when he was uh, 15 or 16. And they worked in the local pharmacy. And he went to tell him what had happened to him and how he had avoided because these guys were also sort of from that same rock and roll current. And uh, they weren't there. And he's, where are these? Like, well, so-and-so is in prison and so-and-so has been executed. And he said, well, that's why Tom, that you really can't go uh, head on with these guys. This is a machine and it's going to trample anybody. He labored on. His brother before him was a perfect communist, uh, my uncle. And, and so he sort of, you know, got opened the door for him. And, and as my dad went through medical school and dental school, a lot of the stuff that was expected of him as a good communist, he didn't do. He wouldn't go to the rallies and what have you. And he wouldn't clap along. And uh, the older brother was always there to sort of cover for him. But eventually when he went to graduate, uh, they told him, you know, you can't graduate without getting a sign off from the communist party leader for your block, for your city block, that says that you're a good communist. Uh, even though you've done all the work and you've had passed all the courses and and you've met your competency as a, as a dentist, as, a, as an oral surgeon. And he went to see the, the guy in the block and the guy said, you know, now after you never participate in any of the rallies, you never applaud our great commandante and now you want a degree? No, the degrees and schools are for revolutionaries, not for the scum. So he wasn't allowed to graduate. Fortunately, he went to another party leader who wasn't one of the Castro folks. It was the old uh, guard communists from before the revolution, members of the Communist Party before when Cuba was democratic. 
And they sort of signed off and he was able to become a doctor and I started doing everything he could to leave. But doctors couldn't leave. Um, they needed them for statistical purposes to say how many doctors they have. Mm -hmm. The only way doctors could leave is if they were psychiatrically crazy. So for an entire year, my dad faked the same disorder that had been used to get him out of the concentration camp with the help of my mother. Eventually, a panel of psychiatrists passed him off as, as, yes, he had a psychiatric disorder, but one of them said, no, he's missing this and this symptom. And I know him from medical school, and this guy's always been against the revolution, mm -hmm. and I'll be damned if I let us come uh, pull this off. And they got to the head of the uh, uh, of all dentists, who was the uh, uh, happened to be the sister of Fidel Castro's right-hand uh, person. And, uh, you know, she called him in to a meeting and she said, uh, I know you're not crazy. Um, I've been told this and and I want to know why it is that you want to leave. I know your brother. He's a great revolutionary. Um, I went to school with your dad. I know he's a good man, even though he's not uh, involved in the uh, revolution, but he's a good man. And why do you hate the revolution so much? And why are you going through these lengths to pretend, uh, you know, I could have you sent to prison for this? And he said, after a year of planning it, and you know, the whole plan came unraveled, and he said, you know, I just want to be free. I don't want to be told uh, what to study, where to study, where I have to work, what I have to do for my career. Whatever I do, if I uh, succeed or fail, it's my problem. And she just looked at him, and he thought to himself, all right, from here I'm going to prison. And she said, you know, it's time for lunch. This meeting is over. And they walked together down the hallway, down the elevator. He got home and he said to my mom, I screwed up. Go with the children to, to your mother's house. I don't want them here when they come to pick me up. And surely the next day, he got a knock on the door. And someone came and said, uh, Dr. Felipe, here are your papers. You're free to go. Wow. Now, you know, that was our, our story. Then we left to Costa Rica. We were there uh, as refugees. And uh, eventually, it was a government program in the United States. Uh, offering us to mobilize, to, to relocate to the United States. We were happy to be in Costa Rica. We just wanted to be in a free country. Uh, and Costa Rica was definitely a great free country. Um, but in the process of the interviews, and we had family here, we went to the interviews. In the process of the interview, the fellow asked uh, my father, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And uh, my father said, you know, I've never been asked that question. Uh, where the right answer is a different answer. If this is the standard that America has, then I want to I wanna go to America. I want to live in a place that understands that communism is a, is a disease uh, on humanity. And, uh, and that's how we got to the United States. You're the first Gasano I've ever had on my podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They like to say that uh, all those uh, worms eventually... Um, turn into butterflies since they now want them back for their dollars. That's pretty well put, well put. So talk about your own journey. Did you grow up in Miami after your folks came here? Or? Yes, um, I left Cuba at the age of nine um, to Costa Rica, as I had mentioned, and then we got to Miami at the age of uh, 10. Uh, I think it's a critical age because, you know, those that came in too early, say someone came in when they were three or four years old, they are 100 uh, percent American. They really don't have uh, sometimes they don't even speak Spanish. Well, if you came here, as my brother did at the age of 13, 14, um, A, you keep the accent and, and, and B, um, you're more of an 
uh, an immigrant. When you come at the age of 10, you really are uh, 100% American and 100% Cuban. You've got your Cuban roots and, and language 100% honed in, but you're still at an early age enough uh, where you absorb completely the American culture and, and then you become truly someone that understands uh, both cultures. And, um, and so, yes, I, at the age of 10, I started uh, in many ways my life as a foreigner. Um, I never thought of myself as a foreigner growing up in Cuba. I thought of myself as Havanese from uh, from Cuba. This is my country. This is my home. I never knew that we that I was going to be living somewhere else. And then at the age of ten, I see myself in a different country. Don't speak the language. And then comes this concept of well, you're a minority and you're disadvantaged uh, because you're a minority. And that was quite a shock because we never thought of ourselves as disadvantaged in any way. Uh, blessed to be in America, blessed mm-hmm. to have the opportunity to escape from a dictatorship. Where was that coming from, that, that you all were victims or, or um, disadvantaged, as you said? Well, that starts when you're, when you're entering college. And uh, there's all these uh, uh, forms, and they're telling you to take advantage of this and take advantage of that, because once you enter American academia, that we're all victims and we have to behave like victims. And I think that's something that Cuban Americans haven't done. Um, never saw ourselves as victims. We saw ourselves as blessed to have a country uh, to come to, to to realize our, our dreams and realize ourselves as, as free humans as we all are and should be. And so, you know, it's I think it's I guess it's a matter of perspective. Maybe maybe if you were born here, you don't feel that because you're a minority, you got you're getting a fair share because you feel more entitled. But um, we never felt that way. We always felt, on the contrary, complete thankfulness. Um, and, you know, as Jorge Mascanosa once, uh, once put it, he said that uh, Cuban Americans, um, by every measure of statistics, are among the, perhaps the most successful economic group in American history. We have about 25% of the Hispanic wealth, even though we're about 5% uh, of the Hispanic population. We have 3% of the U.S. Senate. Uh, where we have less than 1% of the popu- of the U.S. population. But that is not simply attributed to any specific form of Cuban greatness. That is attributed to the opportunity that the United States gives you and then having the appreciation to see it and, 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 and take it. In many ways, I compare it to a, a racehorse that's itching to, to run and you keep it locked uh, behind the gates. And uh, at some point, you release the gate and you start running as hard as you can. And perhaps a horse that's never been locked in doesn't run as fast, doesn't takes it for granted. But for those of us that don't take it for granted, we appreciate it, we love it, and uh, we cherish it. And that's why we thrive, because we recognize the great opportunity that is America. Well, I'm going to make an assertion here. When we talk about prejudice, especially of, of large groups of people, people generally think of I- ignorant uh, lower class people, maybe, or maybe even upper class, I guess, you know, disparaging racial minorities. But when I bring up the subject of, of Cuban exiles to several people, uh, both while I was in Miami and other places, to non-Cubans, and if they're on the political left, man, they are very uh, unhappy with you all. For, Absolutely. For several... Because we don't fit their narrative. Uh, yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I mean, first of all, you won't stay in your place. Second of all, you won't vote how they want you to vote. Third of all, like you said, with the success of Cuban-Americans, you're, you're not proving the narrative that, that you can't make it in America even if you come here with nothing or in your racial minority. Look, there was discrimination against the first Cubans that came. It's not like... 
we've been spared because a lot of the, these folks on on the far left try to dismiss Cuban Americans um, not fitting their narrative by saying, well, the majority of Cuban Americans are white and look white, and they came here with boats, boatloads of money. That's not true. We, first of all, most, almost every Cuban American, with the exception of the Bacardi family, uh, lost everything and came with nothing. We mm, were predominantly white in the early immigration, but not uh, white, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, white with the Spanish prototype. Uh, so there's always room for discrimination. And in fact, there was discrimination. There were places in Miami where in the early days it said, you know, no dogs, no blacks, no Cubans. Um, but it's how you take that. I mean, you understand that there's going to be racist people in the world. There's going to be uh, bigots. Um, but that cannot be the majority of America, nor can you impute that ignorance and that crime to the country if the country itself has been fighting against bigotry, has been fighting fascism and Nazism, has been fighting communism. Uh, it's opening the doors um, for you to come and, and, and rebuild your life. So, you know, this is a democracy. If that bigotry was sort of the predominant current, then none of this would have happened. We would have joined uh, Hitler. We wouldn't have fought him. We would have uh, perhaps joined the, the communists, not fought them. We would not open our, our doors to, to people looking for freedom um, from oppression. So, you know, I think it's it's how you look at it. You could look at a, at, a, at a glass and say it's half empty, or you could say it's half full. And that optimism is what carries it. And I think part of that optimism comes again from um, it's all where are you starting from? You know, we were starting from being oppressed. When you come here, you say, okay, so what if there's a few uh, idiots out there? This is a generous country. And let's take advantage of the opportunities that it gives us. Find me a country where there's no idiots. Exactly. Al cielo una mirada larga Buscando un poco de mi vida Mis estrellas no responden Let's talk about how you decided that you would become an attorney and let's talk about what kind of law that you practice. Well, I mean, one of the things that I, um, from an early age that I always wanted to do was help Cuba regain its freedom. Um, I always felt, you know, why was my happy, normal uh, childhood entitlement, which was to live in the country that I was born, why was that cut off by uh, these people that came in and took power by force um, and without the people's consent? And I say without the people's consent because uh, while the revolution was very popular uh, early on, it was very popular based on the concept that it was there to restore the democratic constitution of 1940, that it was there to restore the basic freedoms, uh, none of which happened. And within a year, the, the, the regime had done away with all of its promises, had scrapped all, every single one of its promises and, and it showed its true colors. And it started with the firing squads and the, the torturing of, of anyone that opposed it, including their own um, members of their own ranks who expressed concern about whether or not they were going too far. So anyone that was suspected uh, was was tortured or executed or imprisoned. Um, anyone that wanted to settle a score with anyone on a personal basis would just simply accuse them of betraying the revolution, and they would go down as well. So, you know, why do these people get to do this? Uh, you know, I have as much of a right to to my country as 
as they do, and why should I be the one to leave? And I've always wanted to do that. Um, but, you know, coming from a medical uh, family, I was expected to be a doctor. And after much debate that I didn't want to be a doctor, uh, they said, well, fine, then you can get one of the other professions. And I said, well, you know, law probably will do it. It'll be a good platform. Because ultimately what I'm talking about is in, in my narrative of reconquering my homeland, uh, the place of my birth is one of justice, one of really fighting for, for the oppressed, fighting for someone that's truly uh, been victimized uh, by an armed gang um, of criminals. And, and, I, and I could say that with full evidence to back up, they're running a criminal enterprise that now stretches the entirety of the Western Hemisphere, um, from money laundering, drug trafficking, prostitution, uh, and everything else in between. And, um, and so law was sort of a, a, a compromise from not being a medical family and a good pathway that I saw for the bigger role that I am actually playing now, which is, you know, basically to be the lawyer um, of the Cuban cause, the, the lawyer for Cuba, um, representing it against uh, uh, the people that are raping it, that are raping her. How does that manifest? Like, how are you helping the Cuban people? A few years ago, uh, and by the way, you know, we've worked this on this uh, my entire life. The, when we were in college, we started in our, an organization, student organization, um, Florida International University, the local university here in Miami, uh, which uh, have a Cuban-American population. We have hundreds of students join our uh, Cuban uh, uh, Democratic Solidarity Group, and uh, we brought replicas of Cuban prisons, we want political prisoners to talk to the students. And uh, most of the folks in that group eventually went on to become uh, leaders in our community. And they're now in different positions. They've held positions in the White House, in the State Department, in, in many different um, places. Uh, some of us joined what was then the Cuban American National Foundation. Uh, back then was the most effective foreign policy lobby in the United States. The Israeli uh, lobby or the Jewish lobby uh, that was divided into two big organizations. We, we only had one. And I was uh, the youngest and the poorest member at the time of, of their board of trustees. Eventually, that group, the, the founder passed away, that group splintered. Um, and the, the organized lobbying uh, efforts in Washington from the Cuban exile community went down significantly, starting at sort of the end of the Clinton years. Um, and a lot of things happen as a consequence that we're paying or not, which we can talk in a, in a little bit. But what I noticed at that time was that, uh, you know, I was a young professional. I was 27, 28 years old. And I needed to really, uh, if I was going to have any, any leadership, I needed to basically organize myself. Because uh, at that time, when these, all these groups started waning in their influence, uh, one of them asked me to serve as a young man as their executive director, and that lasted less than a week because I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And unfortunately, as you know, I, I knew a young guy, um, everything was too ambitious, too risky. And I said, well, I'm not going to do it this way. Um, either I'm in charge or I'm not. And they looked at me at my ripe old age of 27 and and laughed. And so <laughs> I <laughs> and so I said, you know what, I'm going to go out, I'm going to make some money, and I'm going to come back, I'm going to do the same thing Jorge Mascanoso did. I'm going to create my own institution from the beginning. Years later, I did that. I was planning for the right moment, but, you know, 
you can plan as much as you want. The, the battle plan is only as good as the first bullet. And um, even though I didn't think we were ready, and when Obama announced all the change in policy, we figured it has to get done. And uh, so in 2016, uh, we began uh, the Inspire America Foundation. And the Inspire America Foundation, in our first, very first uh, meeting uh, or event, we had over a thousand people. Um, we had uh, Dr. Oscar Elias Bisset, Cuba's leading opposition leader, someone who was nominated for a Nobel Prize and was awarded the U.S. Presidential Medal of Freedom uh, with us. We had uh, just about every single mayor uh, from the different municipalities in Miami. We had uh, messages from Senator Rubio, all our different members of Congress, somewhere in, were present and a message from President Uribe of Colombia. And with that kind of support, we really began a push, a push that included uh, doing polls. So all the campaigns, the Trump campaign, the Hillary campaign could understand where Cuban Americans stood on this issue. Because for too long, the Obama machine had pushed narratives that Cuban Americans had changed. And that's a narrative that had been pushed since the early 60s. Every three or four years, there's a Miami Herald article about how the new generation uh, doesn't feel as strongly as their parents and they're ready to give up and, and basically uh, make peace with the people that killed their families um, and, and forgive them even though they haven't asked for forgiveness. So we were tired of that narrative. We put out the polling that showed consistently Cuban Americans and both political parties um, were very, very strong on um, not accepting and repudiating Obama's Cuba policy. Um, so that campaigns could understand that. We uh, brought speakers from different places. We lobbied for a reversal of the Obama sanctions once the Trump administration was in. We lobbied hard to make sure that um, Radio and TV Marti was returned to a, a Cuban-American that shared that vision that Cuba is a dictatorship. Because under Obama, Radio and TV Marti was headed by a woman who prohibited uh, Cuban dissidents from being interviewed if they used the word dictator. Uh, to wow. refer to Fidel Castro. She said that it wasn't consistent with uh, America's policy to befriend the Castro regime. And this is a person in charge of an agency whose job is and mission is to bring uncensored news to Cuba. And she's censoring Cuban opposition leaders, but posting on the taxpayer-funded website speeches by, uh, by in the positions of the Cuban government. And so it really, we had, a, we had to do a complete takeover of that institution. We're still in the process of working with, uh, with that institution and modernizing it because Radio and TV Marti, as the name suggests, does radio and television. Uh, we're now working with a defense contractor uh, and we'll be able to announce this shortly on a solution that will bring free uncensored internet to Cubans in Havana. We'll start with Havana. Uh, people will be able to get the service on their cell phone. So uh, right now in Havana, if you try to type in Dr. Oscar Elias Bisset and you try to text that message to somebody, hey, I, did you hear about Dr. Bisset? That message will not get anywhere because it's censored. It goes through their censorship filters. Um, not to mention that you could only get Wi-Fi at specifically designated parks and offices where you're being supervised. And now recently, um, as, as the... Trump administration, in part with uh, with our urging, has said that they would start looking at how to provide internet uh, to Cuba, uh, uncensored internet to Cuba. Now they've said, well, we're going to give you internet if you pay for it. You can have it on your phone. Great innovation uh, on the part of the Castro government. Well, 
problem is that it's very slow. It's censored. And if you were to use it the way an American uses their cell phone, the bill would be upwards of $1,000 a month, close to $2,000 a month. Uh, obviously, in a country like Cuba, <laughs> no one can afford that except the generals themselves. But they can say it's available. Now, all of this presents, if we are able to pull this off, presents a game changer in Cuba, not only because of the amount of information, but because we're directly telling the Cuban government, we are able to operate in your territory, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's nothing you can do to stop it. Um, so we worked uh, on that aspect. We're now also working on a new project um, where we're not just talking about how to bring the, the Castro regime down, but what's going to happen afterwards. And there's a um, project that we've uh, funded with Florida International University, the Inspire America Foundation, Columbia University will be involved, called uh, Inspiring Democratic and Economic Alternatives for Cuba, Ideas for Cuba. We're going to have a panel, an advisory board of economists, diplomats, and jurists um, put together a recipe or a couple of different options and recipes for the reconstruction of Cuba. What would the legal reforms look like? Are you going to do the check model where you keep the communist constitution temporarily uh, and just say that anything that's inconsistent with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is automatically deleted and you use that as a transition model for a year while you uh, have a constitutional convention? Or are you going to say the last democratic constitution in Cuba was the 1940 constitution and that would be the one that's in place in Cuba until a new constitutional convention is administered? Uh, are we going to, uh, from an economic perspective, are we going to um, have tax policy of at the beginning, at least for the first five years, zero taxation so that you promote foreign investment, um, the much needed foreign investment, and then borrow uh, at the beginning? Um, and if you're going to do that, are you going to either dollarize or peg the peso to the dollar so that essentially you take out all uh, monetary policy uh, out of the hands of whatever government there is because monetary policy is very tied to uh, uh the perception of stability and faith in, in the government and a brand new government of this nature there's not going to be a lot of faith so taking that power away and putting it in the uh, in the hands of a foreign currency like like a strong currency like the u.s dollar at least for the first five years could be a very stabilizing thing for the cuban economy all of these are the issues that will be discussed in this panel that is again forward looking what are you going to do with regime officials. Are you going to do the model that the United States implemented in in uh, post-World War uh, Germany, uh, where obviously uh, the folks at the top uh, had to face justice, but everybody else from a certain level down uh, were basically just given an amnesty. Um, these are all issues that have to be discussed and debated, and rather than debate them after the regime falls, uh, I, it's, it's a good thing to start that process now so that there's a blueprint with a couple of options available for whoever is the successor or the leader of that transition uh, phase. So we're you know, working on that project as well. You know, one of the other things that we've done is the uh, take over the project of the American Museum of the Cuban Diaspora, where we could tell the story of why Cuban Americans left Cuba. Um, you know, the firing squads, the tortures, the prisons, the indoctrination of their children how we came, the story of the Peter Pan children that came through the Catholic Church on a company, the freedom fights of Marielle, the, the rafters, and what we've done here in the United States as a community, how we've appreciated and served the United States. A lot of people don't realize um, that um, uh, when SEAL Team 6, uh, or don't know, even Cuban-Americans, when SEAL Team 6 came back from eliminating Osama bin Laden, they took the flag that they had with them and they gave it to a Cuban-American. 
Pete Rustin. Pete Rustin was a an official of the National Reconnaissance uh, Office, something that's even more secretive than the uh, than the NSA. Uh, and he developed most of our modern satellite systems. And he was able to monitor most of the current uh, NASA spaceships are built on original concepts from Peter Rustin. And um, he was retired when uh, the attacks of September 11th. And he was brought out of retirement and from just like in the movies from a little cabin log cabin where he was retired in the carolinas he was directing much of our covert war against bin laden one of the uh, members of the 9-11 commission said that without a doubt pete was the most valuable member of the 9-11 commission there's a lot of unsung uh, heroes uh, unknown to the public of contributions that cuban americans have made to the united states um still most would tell you that it's it's nothing compared to what the United States has done for us as a community, opening its its doors and, and welcoming us. I wanted you to choose like one person that's still on the island and one person in the United States you consider to be heroes people we should be you know celebrating instead of rock stars and well i mean on the island i think uh, dr scott elias Bisset is uh, certainly my hero dr Bisset, uh i guess it's someone who was no- nominated by baslak havel um mm-hmm. to be uh, for the nobel prize and, and received from president bush the u.s presidential medal of freedom um one of the highest honors the united states um, confers and uh, Dr. Bissett um, follows very, very strict believer in the nonviolent uh, civic resistance. Um, he began this um, uh, process uh, back in the early 90s when he did uh, a, a fasting uh, one day for every year the dictatorship was in power. And uh, pretty soon, uh, people all over the island started fasting. And, um, you know, journalists came uh, from the foreign media uh and um started getting he started getting their attention uh, because he was so eloquent and they would say well, you, are you afraid that you're going to to be in prison and say well you know prison is the only logical choice for a just person to be when he lives in an unjust society um and that guarded the attention of the cuban government they sentenced him to three years in prison um after serving for three years he was released for 33 days um immediately after he was released um he called it a it was a mistake to release him because he's going to continue his work and his neighborhood was surrounded by hundreds of people hundreds of supporters um so within 33 days they put him back in this time um on a prison sentence of 25 years um which he laughed off and he said you know this this government uh can't last 25 years and what's the point of dictating a sentence if you uh, have the means to put me as long you know, in prison as long as you want, and you don't have to keep, and you never follow your own rules or laws. And so, uh, after nine additional years, so twelve in total in prison, he was uh, he was released um, a few years ago, and uh, and is still there living in Havana. He will not leave. He will not go into exile. He will not compromise. Um, and he's a great great hero. Uh, he's also um, made his a uh, big splash. Uh, within the pro-life uh, movement because as a doctor, uh, his first act of dissent was to call to the attention of the authorities 
practice of forced abortions in Cuba. Whenever somebody, a mother had a complicated pregnancy or it looked like a, a, they were going to give birth to, to a child with Down syndrome, there would be a lot of psychological pressure applied to abort. And, um, and he called, you know, he, and sometimes, even without the mother's consent, they would be given medicine to cause abortions. Um, and, uh, and so he did a report on that when he was still within the healthcare system. And he was, um, because he's a doctor, he was expelled from the healthcare system. Um, so that garnered a lot of support from the, uh, from the pro-life movement and the, you know, Christians uh, in general or in, in many different places. So he's definitely a hero. Here on the other side, I think we have a lot. We have a lot of folks that that we really have to to look up to. As uh, some are alive, some have have passed. Definitely, uh, Jorge Mascanosa uh, was a great patriot. Someone who came to America, realized the American dream, started as a milkman, worked his way up, had a, uh, a one billion dollar company, but never gave up on the dream of a free Cuba and put his entire estate and fortune towards the cause of a free Cuba. Uh, Celia Cruz uh, and um, Olga Guillot. Olga Guillot uh, was uh, friends with Celia, another singer of the time. She went to exile in Mexico and got her first gig at a cabaret. She really needed the money, but the, uh, the Castro ambassador was there. And she said, you know, I, I apologize to the owner of the club. I know you're paying me money and I need the money. And I apologize to the audience. But as long as this gentleman remains in the audience, I cannot sing. I will not sing for him. And of course, he was booed out by the crowd. So people who really always uh, stood, uh, Senator Bob Menendez, this is a bipartisan thing. Senator Bob Menendez is a Democrat, mm -hmm. uh, not someone that's, you know, not a party that's traditionally been aligned with defending the cause of a free Cuba as much as the Republicans in, in recent history, at least. Uh, but yet Bob Menendez is someone that's stood up uh, to his own party in defending the, the cause of a free Cuba. A great Cuban-American. I mean, the list is pretty long. Um, mm -hmm. There, there's quite uh, a bit of folks, and I think that marks our community: folks that are willing to put their money, their talent, and their career at risk for principles, for the principle that you know the country of their birth should be free of communism. <laughs> And lastly, Mr. Felipe talks about the mission of the American Museum of the Cuban Diaspora. When uh, we were asked to help this museum uh, to get involved, you know, it's a beautiful building here in, in, um, in Miami, in Coral Way, 1200 Coral Way. Beautiful design, the style of an old colonial uh, Cuban mansion, Havana mansion. And um, they had the building, but they didn't have the operating funds. And they were very focused on art. And I said, look, we can certainly get involved. We can certainly get the community behind this. And we can certainly uh, get the funding for it. And, but we need to have a place where we can also capture not just art, but the history of the American, the uniquely American history of Cuban Americans. And, uh, and so we, you know, we partnered up and, and we began a process of turning the the, muse the brand new museum, turning it around and, and stabilizing it. Um, since we took over just six months ago, every single one of our Google reviews has been 5.0, not even a 4.9. Um, attendance is up. We've gotten some of the big names of the community, like Willie Chirino, who's one of the most famous uh, uh, songwriters and, and performers of the community 
to invite everyone to come and see the Selly exhibition. So attendance is up, the community is getting behind it and involved, and pretty soon we'll be able to add the historical uh, exhibits. And, and starting early next year, we will have, for example, by that time the Selly Cruise exhibit will be gone, but we will have an exhibit on the Peter Pan children. These are the uh, children that came unaccompanied as part of a Catholic uh, church operation where not just Catholics, but also uh, Jewish children and Protestant children um, were brought to, uh, to America to avoid the forced indoctrination um, and a law that the Cuban regime uh, originally passed and then later rescinded where the revolution would take um, all the decisions, all the parental decisions were in the hands of the revolution. Uh, for the children, where they would go to school, what they would study, and uh, what have you. And, um, uh, you know, that, that was quite a story. There's, uh, it's really the story not just of the 14,000 Cuban children that came, some of which never again saw their parents, some of which were able to be reunited months later. But it's the story of Monsignor Walsh, an Irish priest that came from a very wealthy family and decided to make this his, his life's mission. And every single one of those kids will tell you what a great influence and what a positive influence uh, Monsignor Walsh father walsh at the time was for them and how he pretty much acted like a father he was tough he was disciplinarian but always there to to help uh and and to guide them through the process and they knew they were taking care of it. in fact some of them say that uh, once the family came they uh, uh it wasn't as much fun because they obviously you know brand new refugees they didn't they lived a modest life they had more parental supervision they weren't hanging out with friends all the time um, and that was, you know, made possible through Monsignor Walsh. So in many ways, one day, a movie should be made in his honor. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for, for bringing this topic up and, and letting everyone know about it. If you're interested in hearing more about issues surrounding Cuba, give In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 199 a listen, featuring Dr. Jaime Shisliki of the Cuban Studies Institute where he educates us on Jose Marti, the debate over the embargo, and the short story of Jews in Cuba. There's also episode 196 with Nick Jimenez of Cigar Snob Magazine. And on that show, Nick helps us understand the culture and science behind cigars, but also how it's tied to Cuban history as well. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.